It's April 22, 1969, in Falmouth, a Cornish coastal town in the southwest of England. It's a windy day, and the sea breeze is blowing into the port. Women tie scarves around their heads. Men wear hats to keep out the cold. But despite the weather, people are willing to battle these elements to get the first glimpse of what's coming into view. A quarter of a million people had gathered, all looking out to sea. And suddenly, they see it. Not one ship or one sail, but a whole flotilla of boats coming over the horizon, all there to accompany one man on the final leg of his journey. Cannons are fired. Foghorns echo around the bay, and photographers bustle for the best shot. And the first people to board were the customs. Jumped on board and said, good afternoon, Captain, where from? And I said, Falmouth. But they're just joking around because this man hasn't traveled from another country. He left Falmouth, this very same port, 312 days earlier, without stopping. He had become the first man to sail all the way around the world, nonstop and on his own. His name was Robin Knox Johnston, and to many he was a hero, and the crowds couldn't wait to welcome him home. So then I was taken to the town hall and had to make the first speech I've ever made in my life, uh, which was a bit not very good. I had the dinner I'd ordered at the chain locker. Imagine being at sea for almost a year, then you come home to a proper cooked meal. Oh, And then we started celebrating. And that went on till about five in the morning. Got up at 10, had a haircut, and we carried on partying until the next morning. I mean, he deserved to celebrate. He'd achieved something that, at the time, no one thought possible. But when people think about this race now, 50 years later, this isn't what they think about. Because what Robin didn't know was that, as he celebrated his big win, another man, thousands of miles away, on the other side of the world, threatened to upstage him and steal the glory of this amazing feat. Robin Knox Johnston's achievement was immense, and yet Crowhurst and his hoax have suffocated the rest of what was history in the making. I'm Alzo Slade, and from Something Else, this is Cheat, the show that takes a look at the people behind some of the world's biggest scandals and tries to answer the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In today's episode, we're taking you out to sea in the 1960s to tell the story of one of the most mentally and physically challenging journeys in history, of the guys who raced to be the first to sail around the world solo without stopping, and of the man who broke the rules and himself in his quest for glory. So, I'm not going to lie, when I think of sailing, I think of expensive yacht clubs, high-end sponsors, and people who wear sweaters around their necks and deck shoes with no socks. Well, 
forget about that. This is nothing like it. These guys were lone rangers, bracing the elements with nothing but their boat and their own physical and mental strength to see the journey through. They were pioneers, heading off into the unknown territory with a thirst for adventure. Even now, in all of history, the number of people who can say they've sailed around the world on their own is pretty small. But back in the 60s, only a handful of people had even tried it, and no one had done it without stopping. So any ocean-going sailor immediately then thinks, well, who's going to be the first to do this without stopping? This is Chris Egan, a former BBC journalist and author of A Race Too Far. You break the journey in half by stopping in Australia. It's very different to doing the whole thing. But in 1968, Robin Knox Johnston, a young adventurer from London, decided he wanted to give it a go. We approached the Sunday Times to support it, but they decided that uh, I wasn't serious enough and wouldn't know what I was doing. So um, they decided instead to organize a race and announced I was in it. So they basically took his idea and made an entire race of it. Within weeks, the 1968 Sunday Times Golden Globe race had been created. You didn't need to enter. Just start and finish in the same place, and the first to do it would win a prize. Simple enough, I guess. But this race wasn't being planned by a group of sailors with years of knowledge and experience. This race had been set by a newspaper that just wanted a good story. So you've got a bunch of journalists making up rules about a subject they know nothing about. And to make it interesting, we'll have the Golden Globe trophy for the first person to get back and £5,000 for the person who goes around in the fastest time. So that's how it went. Boom. The race was set, and the first one back would win the prize. They'd also be timed, so the quickest time would also win a prize. But it wasn't just money at stake. You got to remember, this is the late 60s. Man was preparing to land on the moon. People were daring to do things they'd just never done before. This was a chance to become sailing's version of Neil Armstrong. I mean, it was the most eclectic bunch of people in a way that can never, ever be repeated because nowadays you have whole books of rules and regulations to avoid people who shouldn't be there or shouldn't be doing it in unsuitable boats. There were nine of them. Most of them were adventurers and military men. One guy even drove a submarine in the Second World War. They understood the nature of the challenge, how hard it would be to sail around the world. And then you had the romantics. You had people who literally read about it in the Sunday Times and thought, I'd like to have a go at this, and so did. And of that bunch was a particularly ambitious fellow named Donald Crowhurst, a 37-year-old father of four from Devon in England. He was smart, he was a clever man, and was seen in some respects as regarding himself as something of an intellectual. He was financially struggling at, at around the time of the race, which didn't fit his, his own impression of how his life should be turning out. Crowhurst had started a company called Electron Utilization. They specialized in building navigation tools for boats, but the business wasn't doing so well. He did, to a large extent, see this as a way out 
uh, as, as a way of solving many of the problems he had. Crowhurst sees this ad in the Sunday newspaper, and he starts to think to himself, if I win this race, I could turn my business around. Mm, but there was a problem with this. This guy had never actually sailed a boat on the open ocean before. So he sets about trying to find sponsorship money, uh, eventually gets a local caravan dealer called Stanley Best, who happens to already have money in Crowhurst's business, and interestingly is worried that he's losing the money in Crowhurst's business. And yet, and this tells you a lot about Donald Crowhurst's persuasive capabilities, Stanley Best is persuaded to part with more money. He himself said he never understood how that happened. Uh, and agrees to have a boat built for and by Donald Crowhurst. Yeah, but however persuasive Crowhurst might have been, this wasn't a free ride. To secure the money, he mortgaged both his business and his family's home. This was turning into a pretty high-risk stunt, and the start date for the race was approaching fast. It was common for everybody to be in a scramble as they got close to the start date, but Donald Crowhurst was breathtakingly chaotic. I mean, for a start, he had to deliver the yacht from Norfolk on the east coast of England down the English Channel to Tynmouth. It's a trip which would take ordinarily, uh, I mean, a week at the most. Uh, It took him two weeks. I mean, it, it did not go well. This already sounds insane to me. Just imagine, you're about to sail around the world into the most notorious oceans and weather systems. And you can't even get to the start point without stuff going wrong. Less than two weeks from the start, and he's still got men from the boatyards coming down to work on the boat. Crowhurst had basically built this boat from scratch. And now he was going to try and take it on some of the world's most dangerous waters. I don't think there are too many things that are of any importance that will remain undone. Most of it is is taken care of. There's nothing essential that's missing. That's Crowhurst talking to the BBC back then. He may have been saying everything was okay, but in this clip, he's nervously biting his nails and he looks exhausted. People who knew him who said he was walking around in a daze, you know, it's it's when you're totally overwhelmed by stress that you you just almost avoid it. Yeah, I mean, you've never sailed like this before and your boat isn't ready. That's cause for stress. But eventually, he was ready to start. October 31st, 1968. The start line in a little English coastal town. The night before, they're treated as guests of honor, met by local dignitaries and put up in the best hotel in town. To give an idea of the importance, a year earlier, the Beatles were put up in the same suite uh, on a Beatlemania tour. So, this should have been a special last night on land. Imagine that. The same rooms John Lennon and Paul McCartney had enjoyed 12 months before. Big comfy bed, bubble bath, room service. The works. The last taste of luxury before 12 months at sea. But it was far from it. Claire Crowhurst described to me of just how shocking that night was, of how Donald was in tears for a long time and on and off throughout the night. The boat wasn't ready. 
and neither was Donald. But he didn't have much choice. He clearly felt that he had to go. This is a man who, if he does pull out, is ruined at the same time because he is in huge debt. He doesn't even own the boat. His sponsor owns the boat, so he would have nothing. This dude is in bad shape, and the journey hasn't even started. The next morning is damp and cold, very English weather. He's wearing a, a shirt and tie, collar and tie, as he and the family are taken out in a small boat to Tynmouth Electron. It's not very sexy, but that's the name of his boat. He has a problem immediately with a rope getting tangled up and has to be towed back into the harbour. That gets sorted. He ends up leaving about five hours before the deadline, sailing off into a, a murky awesome evening in the English Channel. How did this guy think he could sail all the way around the world when he couldn't even get out of the harbor the first time? But in just a few short weeks, Crowhurst went from being a no-hoper to suddenly looking like he should be in contention with the rest of them. That's coming up after the break. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The race around the world had begun. Nine men, all leaving at different times between June 1st and October 31st. The route took them from the south of England down the Atlantic coast of Europe and Africa, round the Cape of Good Hope and into the Southern Ocean, then around the bottom of the globe, under Australia and New Zealand until they reached the southern tip of South America, Cape Horn, then a left turn back up the Atlantic and back home to the western tip of England. Simple, huh? I mean, it's almost like you need a visual aid. And if you thought that was confusing, I mean, just imagine trying to keep up with all of these boats. And this is 1968. There's no satellite phones and GPS or any of that digital technology. Yeah, if you take a modern yacht race, everybody's got GPS. In fact, the last one, virtually everybody had a 24-7 broadband connection you get video of of everything and you know you can track on a website exactly where all the boats are every four hours <laughs> you cannot believe how different it was then so all we had was single sideband radios and not particularly powerful ones so what you had to do was set up in advance a schedule and say i will call you at this time in my case it was once a week on a thursday in fact Robin Knox Johnston's radio broke during the race, 
and his family at home lost touch with him for months. So for four and a half months, actually, they had no news of me at all. In fact, they sort of wrote my obituary, which was, I thought, a bit disappointing. I could have written a far better one. These guys were out there all alone, without any way of letting people know how they were doing. Crowhurst's race had started so badly that no one was expecting good news. But after just a couple of weeks when he radios back his position, people are amazed. So he says he's going on towards Madeira, which is a Portuguese island off Morocco in Africa. This was incredible for only two weeks in. No one else in the race had made it to Madeira this fast. But then he hits the Southern Ocean, the most dangerous waters in the world. It's that area of the world, south of South America, Africa, and Australia, and north of the Antarctic. There's no land blocking it. Result is it builds up very, very big seas. I mean, we're talking about 30 meter high waves. Uh, All right, they will spread out, but they can get closer and get very dangerous. And really, you need a very tough boat to go through that. And you've got to handle it right, too. You can have a tough boat, but you don't handle it right. You'll probably get rolled and dismasted. And remember, Crowhurst is basically in this makeshift kind of bootleg boat that was barely finished before he started the race. Between him and the boat, neither one of them had experience in these kind of conditions. It's pretty clear within weeks that Crowhurst is getting very worried about the capability of his boat. And I think he knew that, frankly, going to the Southern Ocean was a, was a death sentence. Weeks into his race, only weeks into it, he's thinking, I'm not sure this boat can hold together. He literally does a sort of pros and cons list uh, very early on in the race as to whether he can actually continue or not. And in that, he decides he's got at best a 50% chance of actually succeeding in going round the world. So you're going down the Atlantic and you're thinking, I can't go all the way round. So you have to understand, if Crowhurst couldn't conquer the Southern Ocean, then the dream was over and he needed to think about quitting the race and heading into the nearest port. Five of the other men in the race had already dropped out, so he wouldn't be the first. Yeah, he might feel humiliated, but surely his reputation wasn't worth the risk of losing his life to these unforgiving waters. He'd have to call it a day and head for land. But when the next report comes... And suddenly, he's got a record 24 hours. Fastest ever, 24 hours, 243 miles. Whoa, okay. So, not only is he still going, but he's outperforming everyone else. The newspapers at home are celebrating this amazing feat, and the public are really getting behind this guy now. He suddenly says he's off Cape Town. Well, off Cape Town? Blimey, I mean, that's, you know, that's the start of going into the Southern Ocean. There's just one big problem. Crowhurst has lied about his position. He is 4,000 miles away. He was nowhere near where he said he'd be. In fact, he was closer to Brazil, a whole continent away. Crowhurst had realized there was no way for people to check on his position. So when he radioed back to land, he could basically tell the operator whatever he wanted. And it turns out he had done this before. 
When he had said he was in Madeira, he was actually hundreds of miles away. Then it was a small lot. He could have made up those miles and everything would have been all right. But now he was in another continent. And so he's left with an impossible decision. He clearly needs to think of retiring. And yet he has just said he's 4,000 miles away from where he is. How can he retire without being utterly disgraced? Keep going towards the Southern Ocean and risk his life, leaving behind his wife and young family? Or crawl into port, turning up miles away from where he said he was, disgracing himself and forfeiting his business and home? His sensible alternative would have been gone into Cape Town and said, this boat is not suitable. I dared take her in the Southern Ocean, which I think every seaman would have applauded. Gutsy call, but the right one. Ah, but Crowhurst was starting to think about another way around the problem. He has slowly painted himself into this corner that becomes smaller and smaller. So when does he start thinking of actually cheating? Actually cheating? Wasn't a 4,000-mile exaggeration already cheating? When does he start thinking of, if you like, moving from the spin, the exaggerations, to the taking the shortcut? I mean, and it's the mother of all shortcuts. It's basically not going around. You float around the South Atlantic and you wait for everybody to go around the planet and come back to the South Atlantic ready for the journey home. Crowhurst was basically going to cut the course. Instead of going around the Southern Ocean, he'd simply wait for a few months, then turn back on himself. I mean, there's no use in going all the way around when I'm just going to be right back here, right? So I'll just rejoin the race on the home stretch, sailing victoriously back into merry old England. He thought, I don't know why he did it, because it was a crazy thing to do. He could falsify his records and uh, get away with it. But how? How could he get away with it? Well, Crowhurst had a plan. He needed to create a paper trail. First, the logbooks. Every day, he would get up and write out the part of the journey he was meant to be on. He tuned into weather forecasts, calculated the longitude and latitude for parts of the world he'd never visited. He was creating a story, one he could easily back up when he got home. And at the same time, he turned his radio off. Now, no one could contact him. He'd gone into a radio silence before the Southern Ocean. He'd said that he had to shut down the radio because his generator was threatened by flooding. Most good cheats know that if you're going to do it, you got to be smart about how you cheat. Crowhurst had realized that if he had won the race, he'd come under more scrutiny. So he decided it'd be best to come in third. Remember, this race didn't play out like a track race where you can see all the competitors and work out where everyone is. Here, you can't see your opponent just ahead of you or catching up from behind. Eventually, Crowhurst heard that Knox Johnston had made it home. This was his moment, to return home and finish the race without much scrutiny. Crowhurst would have just been a, a very noble also-ran. Crowhurst's logic was that only the winners, the record breakers, would have their logbooks carefully checked and cross-examined. And if he came in a respectable third, no one would bother checking his data. But there was one final problem Crowhurst couldn't have seen coming. 
the third man in the race. Of the nine original starters, six had dropped out, leaving Robin Knox Johnston, who had finished, Crowhurst, who was drifting around the Atlantic, and Nigel Tetley. Tetley was the third man, another amateur like Crowhurst, but an amateur who really did seem to be doing well. So well, actually, that it looked like he was going to beat the record for the fastest time. Ah, see, this is exactly what Crowhurst wanted. It would allow him to finish third, nice, under the radar, and anonymous. But then disaster. Tetley is two weeks from finish, and his boat starts to give up on him. What he should do is go slow, nurse his boat, take his time. He'll still get the record. But he's worried about Crowhurst behind him, and so he speeds up. He's uh, near the Azores. His boat, which also had structural problems, sinks. Tetley's boat was ruined. His life was in danger and his dream destroyed. All because he thought Crowhurst was on his tail. Ironically, this is also a disaster for Crowhurst. His plan to quietly finish the race without the herald of a victor's welcome had fallen apart. He had ruined another man's hopes and was now looking likely to set the world record. Mrs. Crowhurst, it now looks very likely that unless he sinks, your husband's going to win the £5,000 for the fastest time. What will this mean to you and your family? Very little change in our way of living, I should think. Um, he won't sink, I don't think. <laughs> well, you obviously know your husband better than anybody else. How is he going to cope with all the publicity that will surround the voyage when he lands at Tynmouth, for instance? I should think he'll enjoy it. He likes people and he likes, um, well, he likes fuss. And um, I don't think he'll mind in the slightest, actually. But in fact, Crowhurst was feeling the opposite. Attention and fuss were the last thing he wanted. Crowhurst suddenly realized he was going to face scrutiny. And I think it just built up on him. He had basically run out of options. He doesn't know what to do, and it is the unfolding of his ultimate breakdown and descent into madness, because there's no escape. More on that after the break. On June 23rd, 1969, as the world waited for him to course down the home stretch and claim his prize, Donald Crowhurst stopped using his navigational equipment and allowed his boat to drift. If you think about it, it's hard to imagine being alone for that length of time. Months and months out to sea without any human contact. No phone, no video calls. The idea that no one actually knows where you are. All you can see is your boat and the ocean beyond you. The only sounds are the wind and the surge of waves beneath you. Not even a glimpse of another person for nine months. And imagine coming to terms with what you've done out there. You've lied, you've cheated, deceived the public, your family, your fellow competitors. One man has nearly died because of you and there's no one to talk to, no one to help put things into perspective to try and turn things around. That kind of solitude would just eat away at anyone. 
At this point, Donald turned to pen and paper and started on what he called his philosophy. Over the course of about a week, Crowhurst wrote as though he had made a great discovery. He wrote of cosmic beings and that he had realized he could move from being a human to becoming a godlike figure. It sounds crazy, but I imagine being alone at sea can do strange things to a person. It's, it's harrowing reading. It, it, it gets worse and worse. This philosophy continued for 25,000 words. I will only resign this game if you will agree that of the next occasion that this game is played, it will be played according to the rules that are devised by my great God, who has revealed at last to his son not only the exact nature of the reason for games, but has also revealed the truth of the way of the ending of the next game, that it is finished, it is finished, it is the mercy. Throughout the writing, he logged the time, and on July 1st, 1969, he made his last entry. So he puts the time 11.20.40, and then his final words, there is no reason for harmful. And that's it. Those are his final words scrawled quite erratically at the bottom of the page. He's making even less sense. But the assumption is that in the next few minutes, he jumped overboard with his chronometer. Nine days later, on July 10th, his boat was discovered by a passing cargo ship, drifting with no one on board. The photos show the eerie sight of a boat without its captain. Donald Crowhurst was gone. All we knew to start with was his boat had been found and he wasn't on board. Then the captain of the Picardy, which had found the boat and picked it up, had looked at the logbooks. The logbooks told the full story. There are two logbooks. One shows he never left the South Atlantic. The, the news, once it was established that Crowhurst had not sailed around the world and was splashed all over the Sunday Times, was a bolt from the blue. I mean, it was a tremendous shock. And the sailing world in particular clearly were, were somewhat embarrassed by it, actually. And, and Crowhurst, uh, his, his name was Mud. None of us expected it. All of us were completely taken aback by it. Um, you know, you, for a few minutes you think, that's just not possible. Then you realize, but actually it is. It's happened. You know, blimey. You know, and of course the journalists were over the moon. They got ahead of a good story. A lot of us felt very sad about it. You know, felt, as the story came out, you felt sad for the man. He'd put himself in an impossible situation and hadn't been able to get himself out of it. But from the journalistic point of view, wow, what a story. And beyond the newspaper stories of the day, Donald Crowhurst's story would go on to have an impact for years to come. Claire Crowhurst was told early on, cooperate publicly and the story will go away. And she laughs at that now because she knows now this story will never go away because there is a resonance to it. 
It's true. We're telling this story 50 years since it happened. Books have been written, films made, art installations created, all trying to get to the heart of this tragic voyage. At the time of the race, the Crowhurst children were very young. It was only years later that they learned the truth. Simon was 16 at a public school in the library when he notices the Sunday Times book, which he'd forgotten all about and had never, never read, notices it on a shelf and spends days poring over this book, which is the unfolding of his father's madness, which he is hearing for the very first time in his life. He describes it as an electrifying moment. I mean, how tragic is that? Imagine reading about your father's suicide in a book from the school library. Crowhurst's boat ended up in the Caymans. All that can be found today, over 50 years later, are the remains on a beach and the name on the side, Tenmouth Electron. But with the time that has passed, how has the opinion of Donald Crowhurst changed? Is his name still mud, like it was in 1969? Something that always sticks in my mind, Claire Crowhurst told me, this is decades on from the race, is that she was worried about a lifetime of ridicule. And there, there is no doubt the seed for that was the initial public reaction to the cheating. It, it wasn't an understanding uh, ac- acceptance of somebody who had been in a terrible position. It was just a nasty cheat and liar. Now, over the decades, that has softened remarkably. And I mean, I don't like calling him a cheat and a liar. He was one. He cheated. He lied. But that is not the full story. That is That language is too economical. It does not paint the true, accurate picture of what happened, which is infinitely more complex than just picking a simple description. What do you think was the mistake that Crowhurst made? Getting himself into financial trouble with his business? Seeking to give his business some publicity through entering the race? Or how about entering the race in the first place when he knew he had no experience and his boat was raggedy? This is a grown man with wife and children, and he pulled himself too deeply into a tangled web of deceit. Well, he did cheat, but then I think people got to stop and think about the circumstances. I think he realized after the damage to his boat, the realization, I can't take this boat in the Southern Ocean. I will get killed. And so what are my alternatives? It's not a question of muscle, question of mind. And that's what counts. And Crowhurst just didn't have that mental toughness. If Crowhurst headed out there to make a name for himself, then he certainly achieved that. His story has lived on and has become folklore and round-the-world adventure. He wanted to become a hero. And perhaps, in some ways, he did. All nine of the men who put themselves up for this were taking a huge risk. Nobody knew this could be this could be done. Now that takes a great deal of courage. He had the project, he built the boat, and he got to the start line, and he put himself up for it. There's only a certain extent you can start scoffing and knocking at somebody who's prepared to put themselves up for something like that when the rest of us don't. I wouldn't. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show 
And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat, it's the hipster grifter who took Brooklyn by storm. I do take these moves seriously. Um, when I saw this one in particular, I got so excited because I recognized the name. I think I screamed loud enough where everybody heard me. I was like, she's back! Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Hannah Newton. The series editor is Joe Sykes. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Special thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, Lizzie Jacobs, and Ella McLeod.